Um, this morning's Christian belief, we believe in uh, it, the topic is the Holy Spirit and particularly his work of sanctification, which we'll talk about this morning. The statement is we believe God is personally with us today through the Holy Spirit to help us grow, change, and serve. And if you'd say the memory verse with me. So we say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Philippians 2. And as we've been doing through most of this series, we've been looking at a number of scriptures uh, on the topic of the morning. And at some point, we will take a look at this particular text here in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 16, which was read for us earlier. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 831. Back in 2005, in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, many of us were, were glued to our TV sets and, and our hearts were grieved and shocked at what was going on in New Orleans. And, and I read one New York Post article and it told of residents being evacuated by boat from neighborhoods which were underwater. And the article interviewed a man named Jim Shore. He wasn't a victim himself, but he was looking for news of um, a friend of his who lived in one of the submerged houses. And, and he made a striking comment in that interview about the, the rescued victims that he saw coming off the boats. He said, when you watch the people get off the boats, their faces have an unforgettable expression. They've been saved, but, but now what? It's one thing to be saved from a, a terrible tragedy or danger, but then we may wonder, what have we been saved for? Now what? And that really relates to salvation in spiritual terms, too, in, in a very real way. Thank you. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, know that we've been saved from God's judgment, God's punishment on our sins. But now what? What are we saved for? Well, to understand what we're saved for, we have to make sure that we really understand what we're saved from. Because, you know, there's a dumbed-down street version of the gospel which has been going around for some time now which says that we've been saved from the penalty of our sins. We've been saved from hell. We've been saved from God's judgment. And that's partly true. That's a half-truth, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that we are saved not just from the penalty of our sins. We're also saved from sin itself. We're saved from our propensity, our inner disposition, our habitual tendency to, to selfishly look out for ourselves, to forget about God, to think that, that we know better than God how to live in his world. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when you signed up for this Jesus thing, you didn't just sign up for a get-out-of-jail-free card? You, did you think that um, you were just signing up to be saved from the penalty of your sin? Or, or did you realize that you were also signing up to be saved from your sin itself? Because the salvation God offers is salvation from sin itself as well as from the consequences 
of that sin. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, think about a, a drug addict, for instance. Would you really be doing them a favor by saving them from the consequences of their actions, but never addressing the addiction itself? No, we call that enabling. If we really care about them, we're going to do all that we can to help them get released from the addiction itself so that they can live a new and a healthier life, right? Why would God treat us any differently? He doesn't just want to save us from the penalty, from the consequences, from the punishment that our sins deserve. Yes, he wants to do that, thank God. But he also wants to save us from sin itself, from the destructive way of living that we get so comfortable in. And that recognition helps us to begin to realize all that we've been saved for. Because God just hasn't saved us from hell, God is also saving us for heaven. God didn't just save us to rescue us from disaster, God has also saved us in order to prepare us for paradise. Now, when I say that God is saving us for heaven, don't think wispy clouds and, and, and singing and strumming on harps and, and everyone's wearing white robes and halos and nobody has a suntan. No, think life richer than we've ever experienced it, like, but like you've always sensed you wanted to. We're going to talk more about heaven and hell next Sunday, and, and we're going to be reminded that heaven is, is life at its fullest, that it's all creation healed and, and mended and fulfilled, that it's us fully who we are meant to be, fully fulfilled, fully enjoying life as it was meant to be. In saving us, God is preparing us for that. And not only is it a wonderful future that we look forward to, but it's a life that we begin to begin to live in now. And to get an idea of, of what preparation for this new life involves, let me share with you a parable which gives a, a really good window into what the life of heaven and the life of hell are like. A man was, was praying one day and asked God, God, show me what heaven and hell are like. And, and to the man's great surprise, God took him up on the offer. And an angel came and, and escorted him to a place where there were two doors. And as they opened the first door and looked in, inside was a really attractive and hospitable dining room. The large table was tastefully set, and in the middle was a, a large serving tureen full of the most delicious smelling dish. And just seeing it and, and smelling it made this man's mouth water. And there were people sitting around the table, but, but they were all thin and sickly, and they looked famished. They were holding spoons with, with very long handles that were strapped to their wrists and, and they could reach into the dish and they could get a spoonful of the delicious food, but because the handles of the spoons were longer than their arms, they couldn't get the spoons back to their mouths. And the onlooker shuddered as, as he saw that this sight of, of misery and of suffering and, and the angel said gravely, you have seen hell. Well, then the angel took the man to the other door and they looked in and inside was an identical, wonderful room with, with an identical lavish table with the same delectable food. Again, the man's mouth watered and the people around the table were equipped with, with the same long-handled spoons, but here the people were healthy and they were happy and they were laughing and joking. 
And the man said, I don't understand. Why the difference? It's simple, the angel replied. In heaven, they feed one another. God doesn't just want to save us from hell. He does, just doesn't want to save us from the penalty that our sins deserve. No, he wants to save us for the life of heaven. And this requires that he save us from our, our sinful ways themselves. That he change our hearts, our characters, our, our outlooks and behaviors. Being saved for heaven requires preparation, a lifetime of preparation. We have got to learn a whole new way of living. Do you want that kind of salvation? It's actually the only kind God is offering. Well, the word that Christians use to talk about this process of preparation is the word sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become less sinful, less self-centered and, and difficult, and, and more good, more whole, more peaceful and, and faithful and generous. And there's actually a debate among Christians about how this sanctification gets accomplished. Some Christians argue that, that sanctification is a partnership between God and us. Other Christians say, no, sanctification isn't actually a partnership. It's really a solo act. It's, it's really just the work of, of one party. And guess who that party is? Not us. No, God alone. Do you realize that? I, I think often as Christians, we, we have the mistaken idea that, that, that being a better person is our job, that, that it all rests on our shoulders, but nothing could be further from the truth. God is heavily involved in our sanctification, so heavily, in fact, that some Christians argue God is actually the only one who, in the end, actually gets the heavy lifting done. Let's look at a few verses at this point just to see from Scripture how involved God is in this process. Because I don't think we realize when we wake up in the morning that God is already rolling up his sleeves ready to help us grow. So Ephesians 2.10, we have them up on the screen here. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into the Lord's image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So two things are clear from these passages. First, God is the major player in the work of sanctification. In Romans, Paul insists that before we were even born, God predestined us to be transformed to be like his son Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul adds that, that God prepared good works in advance for us to do. 
And then when we came to Christ, God then began recreating us to do those good works. God began transforming us into Christ's image. Wow. When God saves us, he saves us not only from the penalty of sin, he also saves us from sin itself. He sanctifies us too. And as we saw last week, and as we see in the 2 Corinthians verse that we just looked at, it's God the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives to get this part of our salvation done. Second insight from these verses, and, and that is, notice what God's goal is. It's to make us more like Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, early in July, we, we looked at who Jesus is. We saw that Jesus is the perfect reflection, the perfect representation of what God is like. And we saw that Jesus is also the, the perfect reflection of what a true human being looks like. And the two are related, right? Because human beings are created in the image of God. And in our sin, we have marred and we've messed up that image, but a true, untarnished human being, a perfect human specimen, clearly reflects God's image, unmistakably reflects God's image. And Jesus is, is the perfect specimen, the, the pattern, the prototype. And so if the Holy Spirit is, is going to make us more like Jesus, then he's making us more human. And he's making us more like God, too. And as we become like that, we become more fit for our eternal destiny. We become more fit to enjoy and to participate in life as it was meant to be lived and enjoyed. So how in the world does the Holy Spirit pull this off? I mean, you may be thinking of someone in a chair near you, and you're thinking... Man, I'm just not sure how well the Holy Spirit is doing in their case, right? <laughs> or maybe you're thinking that about yourself. <clears throat> well, this raises an important question. How important is it that we go along with God's plans to sanctify us? How important is it that we, that we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Because obviously we can refuse to cooperate. Don't you face that question a number of, of times every day? How important is it that I cooperate with my salvation, with my sanctification today? You probably don't ask it in those words, but, but, but don't you face um, situations each day where, where you know what you should do, but, but you have this leaning, this, this urging to do something else instead? Well, how... or. Not how, but, but what does it matter anyway, whether we go along with God's Spirit? I mean, if our faith is in Christ, we've, we've already been saved from the penalty of our sins, so we can probably not do what God wants us to do and, and get away with it. So why does it matter? Well, ask an Olympic athlete that. A lot of us have been watching the Olympics this past week. Ask them why it matters that they train on the many days that they don't feel like training. Why do they do it anyway? Because they have a vision. They have a, they have a goal. They have a hope. They've, they've trained. They've prepared for their destiny, for their, their destination in London, right? And every day is one day either invested in that destination or one day wasted along the way. 
Do you realize your destination? Your destiny. Are you getting prepared? A, a guy named Thomas Ryan once said, there's really only one tragedy in life, and that is the failure to become a saint. Because that is God's unrelenting agenda for you. Now, he's not talking about a saint in the Roman Catholic sense. He's talking about a saint in the biblical sense of someone who is becoming sanctified. I mean, if I don't work out every day, it's not a huge tragedy, right? Because the Olympics, they're not my calling. They're not my destiny. But if Michael Phelps or Missy Franklin don't train, if, if they grow soft and, and saggy and, and out of shape, that would have been a tragedy, right? Because they were called to, to swim. They were destined for Olympic gold. And what Ryan is saying here and what the Bible says again and again is that we have a calling, we have a destiny, and it's to be a saint. Someone who is coming to look a lot like Jesus. Someone who will take to the life of heaven like Michael Phelps takes to a swimming pool. So even though sanctification is first and foremost God's business, we do have a role to play in it. And so now look at our Philippians passage, Philippians 2, verse 12. What does it urge us to do? Philippians 2, verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is, is leading you. They have a big plan, a big dream for you. Don't get in their way. Instead, get with their program. So how do we do this? What's our role? Well, to help us begin thinking about our role, let me tell you another parable. This one's from a book called The Ascent of a Leader. A woman once had a dream. She was in a shopping mall, and she wandered into a shop, and she found Jesus, to her surprise, behind the counter. And, and Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus said to her, you can have anything that your heart desires. And she was astounded but pleased, and she thought for a minute, and, and she started asking for, for peace, for, for love, for happiness, for wisdom, for freedom from fear. And then she added, not just for me, but for the whole world. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? And Jesus smiled, and he said, I think you misunderstand me. We don't sell fruits, only seeds. Wouldn't you like to have peace and love and happiness? Wouldn't you like to live in a world where everyone enjoyed that together and no one's trampled on someone else's? It sounds like the very destiny, the very destination that God has saved us for. Well, right now, every day, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is offering us the seeds of that destination, not the mature fruit yet. And our role in sanctification is what we do with those seeds. Whether, whether we take the time and the care to, to plant them, to, to water them, to nurture them and cultivate them. 
Or to go back to the Olympic analogy, the Holy Spirit has designed a personal training plan which is just right for each of us and is guaranteed to prepare us for our destination and our destiny. But it's up to us whether we stick to the plan and follow through on the training. So what's our role? Our role when it comes down to it is, is faith. It's to trust God enough to actually cooperate with him, to follow him. It's to show up each morning and to get our heads in the game. It's to, put, or it's to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by putting our expectant faith in the one who is working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes for us. You see, faith is an active thing. Faith does stuff. And when it comes to our sanctification, I would describe what faith does in two ways. First, faith feasts. And second, faith fights. First, faith feasts. Faith takes advantage of all the nourishment and every resource that God provides. Just like an Olympic athlete tries to, to eat a good diet, to, to take in the right kind of nourishment, to, to build up their bodies and to give them lots of energy. Faith feasts. I've been trying to give you a taste of that feast this morning and, and this summer, reminding you what the Bible, what Christian theology teaches. Because theology at its best is, is an amazed, grateful pondering of, of who God is and, and what God has done for us and, and what God has in store for us and for this world in the future. When we realize that God has totally forgiven all of our sins and has clothed us in the goodness, the righteousness of Jesus, when we realize that God has, has lovingly embraced us and adopted us in, as his own royal children, as a part of his royal family, when we realize that God has united us to Jesus as closely and intimately, intimately as a head is united to a body, as a groom is united to his bride, as a branch is united to its vine. When we realize that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us to draw us up and into the loving embrace of God, to, to pour that love out into our hearts, to, to help us to know God and to love God and to provide guidance and empowerment and insight to, to help us to grow and mature. When we realize that the Spirit has made us new creations, has given us new hearts that we are not who we used to be, when we realize that God has called us out of the world and set us apart to, to know him um, and to be a part of his special people and a part of his special mission to share his good news. When we realize that God is even now preparing a wonderful eternity for us to enjoy with him together in a new heavens and a new earth and God is preparing us to shine like glorious, beautiful stars in that eternity. When we fill our minds with all of that, it transforms our outlook on life and our understanding of who we are and why we're here and what our destiny is. And it moves us to want to follow God and, and to grow to become who God wants us to be. And so faith feasts. Faith feasts on good theological books and blogs. Faith listens to, to good Bible teaching 
Faith reads and studies and meditates on God's word. Faith spends time with godly people who can encourage us in our faith. Faith prayerfully communes with Jesus regularly. Faith nourishes itself on the bread and on the cup. And in so doing, nourishes itself on Jesus himself by faith. Faith feasts. Second, faith also fights. Faith works hard to prepare for our destiny, just like Olympic athletes work hard to prepare for theirs. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not salvation by works. It's not even sanctification by works. We can't earn God's favor by our efforts. We can't earn his love. We can't even by our own efforts make ourselves better people. As Jesus put it, we may through our own efforts be able to clean the outside of the cup, but only God can clean the inside where it really matters. And so we're still talking about faith here, not not our own efforts, not our own strengths. Faith looks to God. Faith trusts God. But but faith is active. It's our active outworking and, and appropriation of all that God gives us. Dallas Willard, who writes so helpfully about the spiritual life, puts it this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. In most churches, we're not only saved by grace, we're paralyzed by it. We're we're afraid to do anything that might be a work. People need to see that action is a receptacle for grace, not a substitute for it. Grace is God acting in our lives to do things we can't do on our own. God in his grace hasn't just saved us from something. God in his grace is also saving us for something. God in his grace has a wonderful plan for us, a plan to make us like Jesus, a plan to fit us for the life of heaven, a plan which comes with the, the, um, the power and, and the provision to get the job done. That's grace. And faith fights to take full advantage of that grace, to to put our trust in it, to to live it out, to to put that grace to work, to grab a hold of, of every gift that God is graciously offering us. So how do we do this? How do how do we fight by faith? Well, first we watch vigilantly. We pay careful attention to our hearts, to our habits, to our lives. We examine ourselves honestly and and ruthlessly for signs that we're getting off track. Imagine an orchard owner who has plowed all of her life savings into a large orchard to support her family. You can be sure that she's going to be out there keeping an eye on her trees, looking for any signs of, of disease or pests. Because she has a lot riding on on healthy trees and a good crop of fruit. And so we need to keep the same vigilant interest in our lives and our hearts. Faith fights, first of all, by watching. Second, faith fights by putting sin to death and, and stirring up the life of the Spirit. By faith, we deny and we deprive sin of what it wants. We find ways to ignore sin's promptings, to cut off the source of sin's temptations, to deprive sin of its cravings, and to replace it with better choices. As J.I. Packer put it, this is our aim, 
so to drain the life out of sin that it never moves again. At the same time, we seek to stir up the life of the Spirit. When, when the Spirit puts a thought in our mind, we, we welcome that thought. We, we give it room to grow. We act on it. When the Spirit blows the whistle in our hearts that, that what we're doing and thinking is not in God's plan, we listen to that warning. When the Spirit gives us a, a good urge to do something kind, something generous, or put someone on our heart to, to reach out to, we, we act on it, we follow through. And when the Spirit speaks to us through another person, maybe it's a, a family member or a co-worker who, who calls us on a, on a sinful attitude or habit that we have, whether they do it graciously or whether they do it abruptly, we don't get all hurt and offended, but we receive it as what it is, the word of the Spirit, and we listen and we take it to heart. Third, faith fights not only by watching, not only by putting sin to death and bringing the spirit to life. Faith, third, fights by confessing and repenting. When we slip off the path, when we, we don't, or when we slip off the path, we don't stay there, down in the gutter, down in the ditch. No, we, we get up, we get back on the path, we get our eyes back on Jesus. In fact, before we get on the path, down in the ditch, we get our eyes back on Jesus because we might need his hand to lift us up out of the ditch. And we let Jesus take our hand. We let him lift us back onto the path and help us get going again. We confess our sin to God. If possible, we confess it to a, to a real live person who we can trust. And we ask them to keep us accountable, to, to not go back to it, but to help us keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't let bad things fester in the darkness, but we bring them into the light. We confess them. We, we seek help and accountability to turn away. Faith confesses and repents. That's how faith fights. Well, there's a lot more we could say, um, and we'll talk about some more practical things in the discussion group today. Um, but I want to close with an illustration that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those things needed to get done, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way which hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you had thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Will you put faith in that God?